Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold Cold blood is with the strong scheme, I'm a boss Flip the coin, toss the straws This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the spectrum of mental health, perception, our own and that of others, our public selves and our private selves, identity, expectations, and acceptance, the power of a diagnosis and the desire for normalcy, convention and the evolution of the medical establishment. My guest today is Claudia Kalb. Claudia is an author and award-winning journalist specializing in medicine, health, and science. She was a Newsweek senior writer, and her work has been published in the Smithsonian, Scientific American, and Psychology Today, just to name a few. She has a new book out, Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder, Inside the Minds of History's Great Personalities, about 12 famous lives and 12 turbulent minds. Claudia provides a glimpse into the lives of these celebrated historic icons through the lens of modern psychology. Welcome, Claudia Calvin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ellie. I'm delighted to be here. So you asked some very thought-provoking questions. Was Albert Einstein autistic? Did Marilyn Monroe have borderline personality disorder? Would George Gershwin be diagnosed with ADHD today? Were these the questions that initially launched the book? What, what got you thinking about this? Yes. I mean, the question, really, the big question that launched the book was how do we talk about mental health conditions, about the mind, about the evolution of the way we think and behave in a way that um, is going to draw people in? I think a lot of uh, people are used to reading about mental health conditions, maybe in a medical journal, probably in a newspaper article. It's it's tough to get really in-depth, and it's also not necessarily storytelling, which is the way that most people like to learn the best. Tell me about a person's life. Tell me about a story. And I'm going to remember that. So getting at mental health through storytelling, through the lives of 12 people that we all know or think we know, and yet have this other um, life to them, seemed to be a really captivating way to draw readers in. And it allowed uh, me a way to really explore both personal stories and at a bigger level, the, the evolution of mental health over 200 plus years. Well, I hadn't thought about that, that it's so important to have a personal narrative to engage, have the, the listener, the reader engage with the story. And these are figures that everyone, at least their, their name and part of their history is recognizable to, to most people. Right. And when you learn about somebody at a deeper level, it can be very surprising. It can be also reassuring in the case of some of the difficulties that these uh, historic figures endured. So Marilyn Monroe, just as an example, she's somebody that anybody can conjure up in, in his or her mind. I mean, there she was, so glamorous. Um, she had that allure. There she was drawing us all in on film decades back. And yet people, and still today, she's she's this icon that never, ever dies. Um, but Marilyn Monroe had a very difficult and turbulent life. And so it's a way to get at that inner story. I think people um, understand that when you're walking around on a busy street and you're passing a million people you don't know, it's so quick, and yet behind every one of those faces and behind every one of those minds is is a deep story, probably with some troubles and then ideally with some triumphs, but a mix of everything. And this is a way to really tap into that and really connect us all together as human beings. It's funny because even I think if you knew about Marilyn Monroe's troubled past, it's just sort of an addendum and you don't necessarily even connect it with her life after that, you know, it sort of is, yes, that surpassed. And then she had this, this future, you know, present and then future life that was was so fabulous. And you wouldn't necessarily, if you hadn't read your book, connect the two. Right. And I think, you know, one of the scenes that captures that so well that I begin the book with and that chapter with is Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday to John F. Kennedy. And there she is uh, singing. She's got this sequin dress on. It's got thousands of, of sparkly uh, jewels on it that are, that are um, just glittering in the limelight. And she comes out on stage and she sings Happy Birthday in that very sultry way. And, um, you know, she was just months away, three months later, she was gone. And it's just a real reminder that, you know, behind the curtain on any of these people, um, you know, that was 1962 at Madison Square Garden in August, they found her dead. And just so troubling to think that she had that, um, you know, glittering public persona and that internal um, drama in a really, really dark, uh, difficult times. 
Okay, so we know the value of personal narrative. Let's talk about yours just a little bit. What got you interested in writing and especially interested in focusing on science and, and health and medicine? Well, I really had the writing bug from an early age. So as a child, I loved to write and I used to have these, I remember falling asleep and, and just words, sometimes little poetic words of, or poetic lines would just flow through my head. Um, I loved the combination of words. I loved hearing them and thinking about them and writing. And so I always thought about writing as a career, but I also thought about other areas of interest. I was interested in science and medicine, but knew nothing about it and uh, thought about pursuing it, tried a little bit of it in college, but it became pretty clear that it wasn't really for me. I wasn't into the hard sciences. I wasn't sure I could really, um, really go that route and, and take a chem test and do okay on it. So in a way, I got to combine my two interests. When I thought about medicine earlier on, I had thought about pediatrics. I love kids, and I thought maybe I would do something like that. But I was also always interested in psychology and in the mind. Um, and I always wanted to learn more about psychology. And so I got to do both of those things by starting out in writing after I was an English major in college, then started working in journalism and was able to, at some point after a number of years, start specializing in medicine and science. And it really has been a wonderful learning experience um, for so many years to be able to call up these experts in the field and talk to them, have them explain very difficult sometimes um, science and medicine and ideas to me, talk it through and then be able to explain it to readers. It's, it's just a real privilege and it's, it's a wonderful way to keep my mind busy and active. And so how does it feel to have this book now sitting on, on shelves? It's really, um, it's rewarding, it's humbling, it's, it's really an amazing experience. The most wonderful piece of it is, you know, hearing from readers who ha uh, find the book not only interesting in terms of the storytelling, but are thinking about it in ways that, that may help them or others. So I, somebody wrote in saying that she identified with some of the characteristics of Meryl Monroe, and she, for the first time, has decided to go get treatment and therapy because she she sees in the in the chapter the outcome with Monroe and others with borderline personality disorder and how difficult it can be and how high the suicide rates are. Um, another counselor wrote in to say she was using the Lincoln chapter to help counsel students in high school who were dealing with depression to show them that there is value to their lives, that there are positive outcomes out there, and just to just to um, hang in there and get through and look um, at something in a in a positive light as well as dealing with the difficulties of it. So it's all been that piece of it that people are enjoying it, but but even more importantly, learning from it and sharing it has just been um, wonderful. Have there been any responses to the book that surprised you or that were un unanticipated? Um, trying to think, not, not really any that surprised me. It's all been, thankfully, really uh, positive for the most part. I mean, everybody... Um, who's reviewed it. Some people um, really captivated by individual people. Some people just like the idea of learning about psychology. Nothing that, you know, all each one of these responses has been, I guess, at some level surprising just in, you never know if anybody's going to read the book you write. So That's um, always a, a good reason. Yeah, just to, just to know that, wow, um, after a few years sitting in my basement office all by myself, sorting this all out. It's actually out there on bookshelves. And, and it's been um, incredibly wonderful talking to groups of people and hearing questions. People have lots of questions. And, and how, also, how, oh, go ahead. And also just, uh, you know, sharing stories. I, when I'm signing books after an event, every person, not, you know, pretty much comes up and says, you know, I deal with this, my, my child deals with this, my uncle or aunt or cousin or friend or spouse, they all have personal stories to share. And I think it, it's a real um, gratifying way of uniting us all to better understand the mind. And in the book signings or in other discussions, has there been one of the characters that people seem to be most interested in or, or responding to the most? Or is it really across the board? No, I think, I don't know if it's because of the title, Andy Warhol was a hoarder, um, or whether it's because hoarding is something that is kind of um, out there right now. It's not, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, a mental health condition as well as something of a cultural phenomenon with, with TV shows that um, talk about hoarding. But a, a lot of people have come up and said, my spouse or my mother or my father is a terrible hoarder. So that one does seem to stand out. It may be the reason some people pick up the book um, in the first place. 
And, uh, you know, other people talking about, I've had a number of people come talk to me about autism, uh, quite a few people about anxiety. So there's any one of these conditions, um, many of them are, are pretty widespread. And so a lot of people identify with them. Well, and on these TV shows, with hoarding, for instance, you know, they're actually going into people's homes and videotaping them and them being hoarders, which is so interesting. And in, in what we just started the show with the idea of how you get people to uh, digest this information and to connect with it. And in that regard, they're sort of connecting with it so intimately, but without maybe any of the scientific explanation or the relative understanding of the person's experience. Right. And, you know, you, it just made me think, as you said that, that when you think about hoarding, it's, it's an external um, dramatization in a way of an internal problem or issue, um, much more so than something like depression, let's say, or anxiety. So with hoarding, you, you see the chaos um, right there in the, in the boxes and the piles and the newspapers and the bags, and all of that is, is visual. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, um, you know, a way in the book to take to go beyond something like that cultural phenomenon on a show and be able to say, okay, here's what the scientists are saying about it. Here's how it affects people and how it affects people around them. Here's, here's where the science is and trying to understand it. So I, I, I did um, try to pick out the most um, interesting, relevant, timely pieces of science that could, could educate people to some degree on where things stand with these conditions without overwhelming them. Were there emotions you experienced while working on the book or afterwards a story that one of the stories that you most identified with and maybe wasn't the one you, you may have expected to identify with the most when you started writing? That's a great question. Now, the, the person I come back to when I'm asked of who I identify with the most is usually Charles Darwin and um, not because I'm, you know, <laughs> he had the brilliant mind, but I mean, the idea that he struggled with headaches and stomach aches and dizziness while working on on the origin of species he was he was a writer um, struggling to produce a big huge piece of work and I really did identify with that kind of anxiety of um, perfectionism trying to make sure everything is right making you know worrying about how people will perceive the the writing once it comes out that all is um, very familiar to me and I and I identified with those um, issues that he struggled with. And I sympathized with him as I, as I wrote about him. I really um, connected to him in a way because I, I um, found him to be such a moral person, an ethical guy who struggled the way so many people do with just very human um, emotions. And so that was, um, that was really interesting. I didn't know a whole lot about Darwin personally. And then I also, you know, somebody like George Gershwin, who um, this wonderful psychiatrist musician I interviewed named uh, Richard Kogan, who proposes this idea that if Gershwin were a child today, he would be, be sent off to a counselor to be assessed for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. And I love Gershwin's music. And as I started working in Gershwin, I started listening to the music and playing all that wonderful, um, those melodies and the, the energetic tunes and I really connected to that and, and understood it in a, in a different way. And so there were a lot of discoveries that I made um, along the way that Betty Ford, I wrote about addiction, for example, and I, I knew Betty Ford probably the way most people knew her as a first lady, as an outspoken woman who um, spoke with conviction about all sorts of issues and admired her, but I didn't know um, the way she struggled and suffered in those moments when she was identifying and dealing with her um, addiction issues. And so there were just one lesson, one revelation after the next. Well, and, and it makes me think about Darwin when you talk about him. The idea that there was this contradiction and complexity that really played out with this fortitude that here he is putting himself in these really uncomfortable physical and emotional situations based on his in his nature to create and accomplish these goals that he had set out for himself. Yeah, it's it's amazing and the contradiction appears in so many other lives when you think about it. There are so many people who go 
into these fields where they're, it's not their natural instinct or it's not their natural um, personality necessarily. Do you think about um, performers who have um, severe social anxiety? And there are many of them, um, people who are comedians who struggle with depression. It's very, very interesting, the contradiction in, in lives. And, and where that comes from, I, I can't begin to explain. But um, Darwin managed to you know, the work became the mission that was just impossible to ignore. And so no matter what he was feeling, um, I can only imagine he felt that he just needed to push ahead. It was that, that, um, that, that grit, you know, the motivation, the passion for the subject. So let's talk a little bit about how to define that line, because throughout the book, this runs through it, the line between normal and uh, a psychological problem, you know, eccentricity versus clinically disturbed and and sort of this spectrum of when does shyness or fear become a, a paranoia psychosis disorder. And I thought we right. might use Marilyn <laughs> to start that conversation. Okay. And I have a few I can point to as good okay, examples. Great. But um, well, you said spectrum, which is critical because we, I think that the one underlying thing everybody needs to make sure to keep at the top of mind is that all of these conditions do exist on the spectrum. And so you, you ask any expert and they will tell you there are variations in depression, variations in anxiety, variations in obsessive compulsive disorder, and it, it is a spectrum. Autism is a great example of that. You can have somebody who is, uh, cannot speak, who really struggles with, with everyday functions, getting dressed, and you can have somebody on the other end of the spectrum who uh, has social challenges but can, can function and can um, ha- hold a job and do all sorts of other things um, in their lives. So the spectrum is critical. The other piece, I mean, one of the factors that seems to be most important for experts who are making diagnoses is how does this impact a person's life? Um, what what is the impact on a person's life? If if somebody is depressed, let's say, who struggles with feelings of at times um, being very down, feeling um, low self esteem, feeling worthless, um, that person in some cases may be struggling to a degree, but functioning in the world and may say this doesn't affect me day to day. I can I can live my life and I have these moments and I deal with them and move on. That person may not need to be diagnosed, may not need to be treated. It depends on the individual. Um, whereas if you have somebody who's depressed and is uh, in bed with the curtains drawn and not able to, to go out and enjoy life and have a job, that would be a situation where you want to think about getting that person um, a diagnosis so you can get them help. Well, and um, you talk about that a little bit with Abraham Lincoln. And I thought that that really, for me, was a light bulb. The idea that, you know, even during a single day, there was such a variation of where he might be on the spectrum. Right. And, you know, there are wonderful reminiscences by people who knew him and his his law partner talking about how he would find him sitting on the in the office with his, you know, just sort of gazing at the sky with his feet on the windowsill, not even acknowledging him, not really sort of grunting when he said good morning and looking so distressed and so sad and so silent um, that that this this colleague would just kind of leave um, the office. And, and in the end of the, that reminiscence, he says, and Lincoln was alone in his gloom. So he had those moments, but he also was somebody who was a fantastic storyteller. He had a great sense of humor, and he talked about that as his way of venting his moods. So he was able to vent his moods through um, that, through through the um, the good stuff, and also through work. He talked about work as the place, as the way to get past it. So in his case, you know, there is a question: Was he clinically depressed? There's disagreement about whether he was or not. Some people say yes, and some people say no. Um, but it's interesting to to think about you know, as you say, how do you draw that line? You mentioned Marilyn Monroe and with her, um, borderline personality disorder is not, you know, necessarily an easy diagnosis. It's a difficult condition. It's very, um, inflexible in the sense that it's very, it can be very hard to pinpoint, um, and treat. It can be mis- it can be confused for other conditions, but the, um, characteristics of Monroe that really stand out, were that she really had a difficult time having any an internal scaffolding. She could not figure out, in a way, who she was. She ta- she said at some point, "I seem to be a whole superstructure with no foundation." And this search and lack, sort of lack of and search for identity, is a hallmark characteristic of borderline personality disorder. 
um, as are things like difficulty with relationships, which she had. She was married three times. None of the marriages lasted. She um, was very impulsive. It's another characteristic. Um, and so there was a lot of um, stuff there that pointed to this this. Um, Condition Now, she was never diagnosed at the time, but experts today look at her behaviors and symptoms and say they really look like classic um, diagnosis. And, and how important do you think this aspect of a clear sense of self, a self-awareness, an ability to sort of um, acknowledge your situation and have an understanding of it? Because I'm thinking of the difference between Abraham Lincoln and Marilyn Monroe, and then even maybe Churchill, who both Lincoln and Churchill said, you know, they didn't carry a knife around, or Churchill said he didn't stand too close to the edge of the train when it came by, because he had this sort of strong self-awareness of who he was and maybe his strengths and, and I hate to say weaknesses, but his, his more, his challenging aspects of personality. Yeah, I love that question because it, it is such an um, interesting aspect of all of this. So, yes, Lincoln and in depression, um, you know, there's a there's a whole f- a piece of science that studies depression and, and uh, the realism that comes through with people who are depressed. So um, they can often be very perceptive and um, be able to identify very clearly what's going on in a way that other people can't. So Lincoln was very aware of what was going on, whereas in a case like borderline personality disorder, there may be a lack of awareness. Um, so the, So a big distinction among many of these conditions is do you have insight into your condition or not? And there are other examples. For example, um, Howard Hughes had obsessive compulsive disorder, really bad um, problem with germs, real fear of germs, and, and all sorts of rules about how you had to clean a fruit can before you opened it, and 15 Kleenexes to open the medicine cabinet door. Um, OCD is a condition where people often do have insight into it. They know this is this is just crazy that they have to check the stove 15 times before they leave or jump over cracks in the sidewalk, but they have they they feel somehow they must do this and they have to they, by doing it maybe they'll relieve the pain. Um, whereas there's another condition which is really classic for not having any insight, and that's narcissistic personality disorder which is another chapter in the book, um, which I look at Frank Lloyd Wright. And in that condition, the sort of hallmark of that is this lack of insight, inability to understand behaviors that affect people around you. And uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was sort of a, a classic case of that. And, and you know, the, I say in the book that it's not the people who have narcissistic personality disorder who end up seeking help. It's all the family members who rush off to the psychiatrist because they can't deal with this person in their lives. So insight is, is a really interesting piece of it. Arthur Miller, uh, Marilyn Monroe's third husband, you say in the book that he had said, had she been taught to seize the wheel, Marilyn Monroe might have had a very different destiny. Do you, do sure. you feel like Marilyn Monroe, let's talk a little bit about her um, her diagnosis at the time and the type of treatment she was getting and right. what she might have gotten now instead with dialectical behavior therapy. Yes, I mean, the, the therapy and the perception of borderline personality disorder has really evolved um, since she was alive and died. I mean, the, the treatment she got at the time was classical um, psychoanalysis, which is still used today and can for some people be very helpful in unraveling aspects of their lives that affect or their past that affect their behaviors today. With Marilyn Monroe, um, the problem is with borderline personality patients that often kind of sitting in that past and 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 um, not moving forward is a problem because it allows this kind of um, paralysis and inability to um, take steps to function. And so now, uh, and those patients in the past used to be considered and still are by, by some as absolutely untreatable. They were the hot potatoes. Nobody wanted to treat a borderline patient because not only could they not have relationships with other people in their lives, they couldn't have a relationship with a therapist or somebody who was seeking to help them. And so they were very difficult patients. But now there is a treatment dialectical behavior therapy as well as other therapies like that, which are much more about acknowledging the pain and the difficult past saying, yes, I see that. Yes, that was hurtful and painful. And, but let's take that and learn some really, really, uh, 
active coping skills and and, and practical ways to move on, um, even if it's at times very simple things, if you're feeling this kind of angst and um, instability, calling a friend or taking a walk, it can be everything from that to, to specific skills to sort of better harness um, your energy toward moving forward. So um, there's a lot of hope. And I and one of the experts I talked to said, if, if you know, I said, if Marilyn Monroe were alive, were around today and had been treated today, would her outcome have been different? And he said, yes, I mean, her life may have been saved. Well, and neuroscience is supporting that shift in psychology as well, right? That this idea that Yes, we need to recognize the story, we need to, to work through it, but then we need to let it go because otherwise we're just creating more and more connections in the brain that hold on to this past and sort of build up its foundation more. Right. It's so interesting because you can create stories about yourself and narratives that become sort of glued down as, as fact. And the reality is there's always a way to, to reassess, to rethink, to talk about and, and rewrite your own story even. And so I think that in, in the brain that goes on at a, at a neuronal um, level, but even just in terms of thinking about how you frame uh, who you are can change. The brain is plastic, and the neuroscientists know this now. It can, it can learn and adapt even when we're adults to some degree. And so um, it is um, really an important and, and exciting to some degree notion that you can reassess, you can reframe, you can change your, your brain, you can change your own story and maybe um, figure out a way to, to help yourself move forward and have a, have a um, satisfying life. You had said the human brain is infinitely complex and unpredictable. I want to talk a little bit about the genetics, one, the chicken and the egg, which is coming first, the, the behavior and the effect on the brain or the brain and the effect on behavior. And also within that, the idea of genetics versus environmental situations and circumstances and upbringing. For instance, with M Marilyn Rowe, you talk about she had a lot of mental illness in her family history, but then just as strikingly, she was raised in this challenging, challenging, you know, from early, early on environment without any sort of stability and love and support and was super lonely and, and had, had, you know, huge abandonment issues. Yes, there is, you know, it is absolutely a mix of factors. So genes are being researched and discovered in all of these conditions. And in every one of them, it's it's never going to be one. It's always a, a multitude of, of genes um, that would contribute to something like um, maybe borderline or depression or anxiety. Uh, there can be prenatal effects. There can be things that go on in the womb and maybe an infection that can contribute to something. There are all sorts of um, prenatal effects that they're still, scientists are still exploring. There's early environment. Um, so Monroe, as you mentioned, there's also, you think about Darwin losing a parent at a young age. He did. Um, so did Lincoln. And those have been connected to the development of depression and anxiety later in life. Um, you know, I, I talk about Princess Diana, who struggled with bulimia, and she talked about her very challenging uh, home life. She was the child of divorce. She went back and forth between her parents. She couldn't help her her brother get through it. She felt guilty about that. Um, there were all sorts of issues going on with her environmentally. Um, Howard Hughes, whose mother uh, was very much also somebody who was worried about germs. And so did she transmit that genetically? We don't know. But she might also have transmitted some fear through behavior because he was aware of her concerns. So there's just every piece of this contributes. And that is what makes the brain and, and the mind so complex because teasing it out is really, really hard. And the scientists are just at the very early stages of doing that. I thought it was striking when you mentioned with Diana and her mother, um, when she would, the visitations were going to end. And it wasn't even at the time when she was leaving her mother to go back to her father, but even the night before that her mother would often start crying and Diana would say, oh, you know, why are you crying? And, oh, well, I'm so sad you're going to leave. And that was, you know, the next day. And you can imagine for someone who is sensitive, which she definitely seemed to be, to have to try to manage and deal with that and those emotions of, of her parents. Definitely. I mean, I can't even imagine a child that young. She was under 10 years old. She was doing all of this um, sorting out how to please both parents. What you know, She talked about trying to choose a dress that one parent got her one dress and the other got her a different dress to wear to a wedding. Um, which one was she going to pick? She didn't want to show favoritism. I mean, she really struggled with those um, 
emotions and and the, you know as you mentioned this sort of level of of you know the the guilt and anxiety about what what how to please her parents and how to deal with her mother's um crying that's really hard for a child and then that becomes internalized and so how does that play out later um can't say for sure that that caused her bulimia there's no absolute um cause and effect but uh issues around self-esteem and sort of this feeling of vulnerability that she had um were there. And she later went on to, to kind of use the bulimia in a way to relieve some of the pain. She talked about purging as a way of getting rid of some of that internal pain. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm here with Claudia Kalb, and she is an award-winning journalist specializing in medicine, health, and science, and the author of Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder, Inside the Minds of History's Great Personalities. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm here with Claudia Kalb, and we're talking about her recent book, Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder, Inside the Minds of History's Great Personalities. And Claudia, I want to talk a little bit about labels. And we, we've sort of mentioned at the very beginning this idea of, um, you said, you know, what if Gershwin had been, had been labeled with uh, ADHD? And, and also, what if Einstein had? You know, would their genius have been lost? Uh, I remember hearing Ken Robinson talk about Gillian Lynn, who's the famous choreographer, and that she was sitting in a psychologist's office or psychiatrist because she had been having trouble in school. And you just think, oh my gosh, what if instead of him sending her to dance classes he had medicated her right um, what were your thoughts and and what did you learn while going through the research for this book well I learned and I say this in the book at the end because it's so important that there really are no absolutes one way or the other so you can talk about something like ADHD which I talk about through the story of George Gershwin and I really think in so many cases in every case it's an individual situation so there are some um, young people and adults who benefit from treatment, whether it's, um, you know, meditation or medication, it depends on the person, it depends on what is helping them. I think there's a concern, rightly so, about quickly medicating or quickly turning to medication as a, as a, um, a way to treat uh, behavior. And I, you know, people need to be sure that if they are seeking help, they're, they're working with somebody who is very knowledgeable and really does uh, offer a broad spectrum of um, therapies. But in the case of, of Gershwin, you know, his, he, he was a child with huge energy. He got into street brawls out in his neighborhood in New York. He stole food from the push carts. He skipped school. He didn't always turn in his homework. He was um, on the go nonstop. And this was something that really was was an energy that came out throughout his life. Uh, he would crack peanuts while they were doing rehearsals. He tap danced when he was waiting for elevators. There was no level, um, there was no end to the amount of energy he had. Well, when he was a child, had he been alive today, um, this hypothesis comes up by this Dr. Kogan that maybe he would have been taken off and probably he would have. And if he had received an ADHD diagnosis, would it have changed anything. And it's really hard to know. I think the um, the story of Rhapsody in Blue is really interesting. He was uh, woke up one day and saw in the newspaper, there was an advertisement saying that there was going to be a concert of new American music in New York. And he looked at the list of composers who would be performing and there was his name. Um, and he had one of those moments where he thought, oh my gosh, I don't remember committing to this concert. I'm suddenly due to, to perform a new piece of music and I haven't even really started. And he talked about in his um, reminiscences that he got on a train and went from New York to Boston and he listened to the sounds of the train. There were the wheels on the tracks and the uh, propulsion of the engine and the um, sounds of the, the um, smoke and all of the stuff on the train that surrounded him. And by the time he got to Boston, he had the plot of Rhapsody in Blue worked out in his head. And he said that he heard music in noise. And um, people with ADHD, uh, you know, are often looking for an outlet for their for their focus. So it's, it's not that they necessarily cannot focus. It's that they have to find a passion that captivates them enough, and then they can focus really well. And um, for Gershwin, it was music and the energy just poured out. And he was so productive. He, he died so young in his 30s, but he produced 
so much music. So could, you know, would that have changed? Would we have had Rhapsody in blue if he'd been on Ritalin? It's a question that is impossible to answer, but is, you know, it, it asks a lot of questions and it's so interesting to think about. I think the bottom line is in each case, it really is an individual situation that needs to be dealt with in a really sensitive and patient way. Well, it's interesting to think about as well with the relationship with the medical community that once you mentioned in in the DMS that once a condition is published and it's given a a label and, and um, the behaviors are identified, that that shifts things, right? Because then something that might've been thought of as just some quirky behavior or borderline as to, you know, whether someone was quote unquote normal is now they're diagnosable. Right. And then next steps follow. Yes. And there's a reason for that. Um, the, the DSM or the diag, diag, the, the, the medical handbook for psychiatric disorders um, does t- define these conditions because the goal is to be able to to have a, a psychiatrist in New York City and a psychiatrist in California look at a list of um, behaviors and be able to assess them in the same way. So, you know, mental health is such a subjective experience. It's such a subjective diagnosis. How do you try to manage it in a way that you're going to be able to give people a treatment that they um, may benefit from? And and so the, the, the goal is to standardize it um, through the DSM to be able to uh, have those same behaviors line up no matter where you are. But once it does make it in the DSM, it, 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 you know, people are concerned that too much behavior is being categorized as a disorder. And therefore, um, it's too easy to take what may be natural behavior. Let's say you're shy. Do you have social anxiety disorder? You have a lot of energy. Do you have ADHD? Um, you, you, have a sensitivity that can make you look sad or you depressed. There's a lot of, as we talked about early on, there's the spectrum and this question about when is it um, a problem? So I think it's a real balance. There's a concern about labels and over labeling and over diagnosing. And then at the other end of it, there's a concern about not identifying problems and not catching on to people's struggles and then not being able to help them. And there's too much, um, um, devastation. There's too much suicide. There's too much that happens at the dark end of mental health um, conditions that you can that you that you that you can just leave it. You have to be able to figure out when is it um, just a mood or just a personality, and when is it a condition that needs to be treated. Well, and there's so much shame around it as well, which I think was one huge value in this book is to show that, look, all of these people that many, many people look up to and who accomplish so much may have had some form of mental illness or mental health challenges. Right. I think that the stigma is enormous. And it was, that's a big piece of the book. The overall message is that, you know, stigma is really, it's, it's, it's so um, harmful to individual people. It's so harmful to us as a society as a whole, because um, the reality is that we all, there isn't a person on this planet, we all struggle with some level of the good stuff and the bad stuff that can torment us and make us, um, you know, make our lives difficult at times. And so being able to accept that, rather than stigmatizing it, is really important. And my you know, hope really was that by learning about these stories, all of these people who had in their own way, very impressive and, and um, incredible lives and yet struggled at, to some degree means we all, you know, really are in this together. And if we can look at somebody like Charles Darwin, George Gershwin, Princess Diana, Betty Ford, um, Albert Einstein, all of these people and acknowledge um, that they're, you know, they had their own troubles and triumphs, then we then we go much further and better understanding the rest of us. You had said, ultimately, this book is about crossways and connections between the mind and the brain, between public images and internal struggles, between the way people are wired and the way they behave, between famous people and the rest of us. Let's talk a little bit about that distinction for them and then for the rest of us about the public self and the private self. Right. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that I kind of learned during the course of this was when it comes to famous people, there's an added issue with them in terms of dealing with any kind of mental health struggle. And that is that there's a lot of enabling that goes on. Enabling is a really 
difficult situation where um, somehow lets a condition worsen um, by by serving that person in a way that doesn't help them. And, and so, for example, Howard Hughes with his OCD, he wrote these memos about how people had to um, make a grilled cheese sandwich and use the Kleenexes and um, give him newspapers in a set of three so he could pull out the middle one because the other two were contaminated. That stuff, um, people served him and did it for him because in a way, they they felt they needed to and they had to. He was the guy in charge. He was the powerful, famous person. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, uh, as, as one of the experts I interviewed told me, that people with OCD, most people have to go off to work and figure out to, to make their lives functional. They have to go and earn a paycheck and support their families. They don't have the... Um, you know, the luxury or whatever word you want to use to, to, you know, sit in that problem the way that, that Howard Hughes, unfortunately, did because of the, the enabling. And, and Betty Ford talked about people enabled her, including the doctors who found new medications or gave her more pain medication, um, because they wanted to help her. But they also probably didn't want to say no to a first lady, and yet that didn't help her. And so that's a big distinction between famous people and the rest of us that um, can be even harder for them um, in a way. And and at the same time, um, you know, for, for normal everyday people, um, the challenge can be getting the help a person needs and, and seeing past um, things that may not jump out as, as red flags, but that are. So I think there are lots of differences and then still a lot of unifying characteristics between us and famous people. You you definitely distinguish the idea of sort of creative genius and intellectual brilliance and ingenious leadership in these 12 people and talk a little bit about sort of what drives it and what lies beneath it. And it seems like throughout the book, there's sort of this juggling act as to, and it relates again to the public self and the private self. So what drives these people enough to like be out there in the public sphere, even when they're dealing with all these personal issues? And it seemed like you may have had a struggle within writing it you know, you would get close to it and back away that the idea that maybe there was an upside to mental illness. And that's right. not a fair way for me to frame it because I know that's not how you would frame it, but you know, yeah. you know what I'm asking you. Right. And I think, um, you know, it becomes clear in stories, Marilyn Monroe, for example, in a way, I think she used the stage as it was sort of, you know, in a way her happy place, that was where she could be, um, the the actress um, getting the attention and and all of that stuff that she got, but it was it was it wasn't real. It was sort of it, it literally wasn't real. It was theater. Um, and so how did that? How did she navigate that? And and yes, I mean there are all these questions about um, is there an is there an upside to mental health? And I, it is a really hard way to frame it because you don't want to be saying it's you know okay you're depressed, but there's actually something good about that. That's not at all. Um, what I would mean, and I don't think anybody means that, but I think the question is, if you're talking about depression and you're talking about a sort of sensitivity and emotional sensitivity and an ability to see things very realistically, um, maybe those are characteristics that, that actually do make you a better leader. And there's a whole school of thought that, that maybe that is true. Um, the abundance of energy that Gershwin had in some cases um, and it's hard to know with his specific situation, but in some cases it can make learning very difficult. And for a child, it can make um, learning so difficult that the child gets alienated. The child begins to feel depressed and upset. They're not doing very well. Their friends start making fun of them. They lose friendships. They become um, you know, so upset that they lose self-esteem and that can lead to problems. So there is that. And yet there's also this excuse me, creative side to um, that energy that can be, you know, a way of thinking out of the box and not being limited to the rigid rules of um, society. And so then maybe there's this this um, ingenious stuff that goes on in people with ADHD who are able to um, achieve these wonderful um, accomplishments, Gershwin's music or um, somebody who is able to uh, open open a business because their their insights and their creativity are so and their energy is so unbounded. So there there are these you know anxiety can also there's it, it's paired with perfectionism in some, in many cases. Well that can that can mean that that your work is really um, wonderful and 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 it's really um, it's really accurate and it's and it's really useful and helpful and yet 
you know, perfectionism can, can also drive you crazy because it's difficult. So I think, um, I find that such an interesting piece of the whole thing. And, and there is no way to come down one way or the other. I think the most interesting part of it is that it's a tangle of both. Well, in, in Abraham Lincoln's case, with such a depth of intellectual capacity and a sensitivity and understanding and empathy, that maybe, yeah, you're going to be depressed if you think about <laughs> that a lot. But then again, that those are the, the aspects of him that led him to be driven to make such change and, and to to change what was unjust at, at the time. Right. I, I recently just heard Bruce Springsteen talking about his battle with depression and that for him, he says, you know, being when he's on stage, when he's traveling, he is so much happier. Yes, I and, think that's... Yeah, it's such an interesting piece of it that you almost have to, it's a way to get out of it, you know, get get on stage and um, be, and leave yourself behind to some degree. I mean, you're, you're now the performer and you're externalizing for an audience. And so you're not stewing in that stuff that makes you crazy or that bothers you or that torments you. So that that is a really interesting piece of it. And that's, um, you know, I mentioned people, comedians, often there's often talk about depression themselves, musicians with with different issues. And, and it's that in a way their performance takes away from from that reality. And working through this book and the, the work you've done prior, where is your meter sort of right now and your faith with the medical establishment and, and science with all of these um, discoveries in brain research and the new treatment methods um, that now they can identify a specific area in the brain that can predict whether a patient with depression will do better with antidepressant or talk therapy. Are you feeling optimistic? I'm definitely optimistic in in the sense that I am I am constantly wowed by the passion and and um, good work of scientists who are really eager. They go into um, studying the brain and the mind and psychology because they're interested in it, and they do incredible work. And they're working so hard to try to understand the intricacies of the brain down you know down to the cellular level and all of these conditions that they're trying to better understand both you know conditions of of um, the brain and the mind and the rest of the body. I mean, I I have huge admiration for them. I think as with anything, it, that too is a spectrum. And there are people on either end of the spectrum where you could say, you know, in this case, this this pe- person or people, they're pushing too much. They have too much faith in, um, in let's say, drugs to, to change behavior when maybe there's another option for it. Or on the other end of the spectrum, people who can be so um, anti-new treatments or new evolutions of, of ways to look at things um, and unwilling to go there that it can it can be a problem. And in some cases, if you're talking about medication, it can be really helpful. So I really um, come at it from, you know, a really positive viewpoint in the but but a careful one. I think you have to be, you know, very thoughtful if you're a person looking for help or if you're a practitioner trying to help people um, to understand these variations in individuals, the variations in the way treatments help people, and be open to combinations too. I mean, I think that is a really interesting piece of all of this, that often if you're in a position where you're looking or seeking treatment, um, there can be different ways, you know, there's not necessarily one answer. There can be different ways to get at um, treatment. One of the best treatments for some um, conditions like anxiety and depression is physical exercise. I mean, there are ways to, to get um, to, to a new place that, you know, are different from, from other ways. And you just have to, I think, have an open mind, but also be thoughtful and, and careful. But I get, you know, I really, um, hats off to the scientists for all the hard work they're doing. And what did you experience sort of an identifiable shift in any area of your life after researching these 12 historic figures and then writing about them? Or has it left you with a new like ultimate question that you, that you're now <laughs> bound on answering? Such a good question and such a hard question um, to answer. I really think I came away feeling, and I wrote this at the end of the book, that that I had kind of become, I now had 12 imaginary friends, that these people who I didn't know beyond the headlines really um, became human beings to me with all sorts of um, uh, emotions and behaviors and passions and um, quirks that I really got to know and and really learned from. I really became um, um, better 
better instructed just in, in the, you know, the whole diversity of, of life in terms of the way we think and what we do. And I, you know, I'm in awe of some of them. I feel sorry for others of them. I mean, each one sort of gave me a new way to think about the way our minds work and also to have some level of, um, understanding beyond that to people around me or beyond me who I may not even know to better understand the various stories that are going on in their lives that could be affecting the way they behave that um, might not be understood without a deeper, you know, level of, of research into, into these lives. So I think that I really did um, benefit from researching these lives from learning about what drove these people what bothered these people what made them um do what they did and and really be able to to use that to better understand everybody around me and myself and and, in addition to that because you always gain a better understanding i think of your own um issues when you read about other people and and can identify with with what they're going through as well some more compassion and empathy towards those in your life and, and towards yourself as well. How about when you are looking at what the figures and the prominent figures in our lives today that will be the historic great personalities right. of tomorrow? Has it, has it shifted your perspective there, do you think? You know, that really, too, is so interesting because um, throughout my talks I've done on this book, since, since the book came out in February and was published, I've done numerous talks where people almost invariably asked as the uh, campaign was heating up um, what I thought about the minds of the candidates. And, you know, you do realize that people are very curious at some point. They, they want to figure out what's going on with somebody in a public figure like Trump or Clinton. Um, you know, you, you, you ask those questions and it made me think, well, how would they be um, thought about, long, you know, 50 years from now? Um, I think there's definitely, you have to be careful about looking at people um, in the past, um, just to be sure you're giving them a, you know, a full analysis and, and really a fair analysis. And I, I, I did that in the book by, by looking very deeply at biography and research and autobiographies and medical studies and talking to medical experts. Um, and so um, the goal is really to better understand them. And as to who now, I mean, I think <laughs> um, you could think about so many people and how they um, behave and how they appear, what is going on behind closed doors. It's interesting to speculate. Um, and you just have to be careful but, about it. You stayed grounded. You haven't found yourself at 2 a.m. <laughs> tweeting to all these people saying, you no. might want to make an appointment and look into this. No, I think it's, it's really... Yeah, that's it's admirable. Right, right. It's tempting for people to do that, but I think you have to be careful. All right. Well, this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I've been speaking with Claudia Kalb, author of Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder, Inside the Minds of History's Great Personalities. And it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Claudia, for joining us today. Thank you, Ellie. I loved your questions and Great. so appreciate your interest. Thank you. Great talking with you. You too.